We are recording. We are going. How are you both doing? Good, Good thanks. thanks. Yeah. So we've got Gem, Gem Wave, and we've got Sai Wave. Hey. Um, so we're going to be talking a little bit today, um, not just about addiction, but about recovery, about sort of the way, the way we think, the way we act, the difference between the two. Um, so yeah. So how how long have you both been in recovery? Um, for me, I've been recovering from heroin since my 16th year, I think, and alcohol just in my second year of recovery, first year of recovery. So, like, I think I'm about 15, 16 months. Or something like that. Mm. Yeah. Uh, alcohol, uh, it will be August the 6th, I'll be, it'll be 17 years now. Yeah. Brilliant. Wow. So, mine, mine's August the 8th. And it'll be seven, so I'll get me the seventh little line on. Well, if if we're allowed to play out and if we're allowed to get tattoos in August, I'll definitely be going to get my uh, yeah. my seventh little line. How how are you coping with this being locked down? Um, I've kind of I was alright at first. I found it fairly easy because like spent a lot of time on my own anyway. So it wasn't that big a deal at first, but it started last couple of weeks, it's really started to get to me. Because they're mm. forced being sat in most of the day. And mm. It's just, you know, it's got to me a bit last couple of weeks. Yeah. I, I'm very lucky in the sense that <clears throat> I thought it gets to me more than it has, but um, I'm very lucky in the sense that I've still been working full time. I've been working from home. I've had quite a lot of structure to my days. All it's done for me is it's taken out two hours commuting a day, which has been welcome. Yeah. Um, I I think I must have been a bit hyper at first because I wrote, I think, four articles and six poems in about three weeks. Um, so I was definitely, I think, reacting to the, the confinement. Since then, I've, I've pretty much settled down. Uh, I do find the odd day, I just get up in the morning and just feel, yeah, don't feel like doing much. But because, you know, I sort of regulate my own days, those days you just, you don't do much. You do, yeah. the, you know, you do what you have to and that's it. Yeah, well, I spent the first two weeks of lockdown unable to walk. So I got, yes. I got yeah. something called plantar fasciitis. Um, yeah. And it's because, because I ride the bike, I've got motorbike gear that looks like I'm just wearing jeans and trainers. Mm. But the motorbike boots don't really support your feet, so the arch of my foot wasn't getting supported. And then just over time, it's just gone. And I literally could not put my feet on the floor. It was awful. Mm. Um, and then I started with, like, a virus. Um, I don't know if it was the virus, but I had a virus. And it just had a really weird reaction in my body. Like, my body didn't know how to deal with both of them at the same time. So I had, like, bruising all up my shins. Um it came to a point, if you imagine having socks on and getting a suntan, that's what it mm. looked like. Like my legs were normal to literally a circle and then it would just bruise up until up until that point. It was really, really weird. Yeah. But for the first two weeks, I couldn't do anything anyway. So I was just sort of taking it as I just need to rest. Sooner, as soon as I was up and walking, I was it. I was just restless. I, was like, I need to do something. Mm. Um, so me and the way my head works, I was out looking for projects and work and sort of all sorts of things to do so mm -hmm. uh, it's that sort of i need i need stuff going on uh, yeah because i 
I can't focus. I can't concentrate. Um, I don't know if I've ever told you both. I usually mention it when I'm on stage, if I've got a new spoken word piece that I'm reading. So I, I can't read because I can't focus on one oh. thing at a time. So while I'm reading, I'm sort of, oh, don't forget, you need to ring. Oh, that person rung and you didn't call them back. Oh. You've got that mail. You've got these emails. And all the time I'm just reading this thing, but all these things are going off in my head. Oh. Um, and I've tried meditation and I just sat with my eyes closed thinking, you're not meant to be thinking about anything. Stop think. Stop thinking <laughs> about not thinking about anything. I was yeah. awful. And I just found myself getting more and more frustrated. So I've got my own way of dealing with things. And somebody once asked me if I could change it, would I? And I just think life experience would not have achieved anywhere near as much as what we have. Mm. If I could do one thing at a time, because I would have just done one thing at a time. But because we've got sort of all these different things going on, we've been we've been quite successful, which has mm. massively helped. Are either uh, of you two similar? Is... I was going to say, yeah, oh, sorry, sorry. Oh, sorry. Uh, my brain's very simple, Phil. We've spoke about that before. Uh, I can't. I struggle to concentrate on anything, really. So, but at the beginning of lockdown, I just like Jevon said, like. I was writing so much poetry all the time, it was flowing. And then now I'm just sort of, my brain's sort of gone, and it's, I can't create anything at the moment, but my brain's still racing. So that's why I haven't slept. I've been awake half at night, trying mm. to think of something to switch my brain off. So I get a bit like that all the time. It's interesting, isn't it? I think we all are. If we all went to school today, I've no doubt that would all be classed as ADHD because yeah, I certainly absolutely. would. I was the naughty boy in class. I couldn't keep quiet. I'd always be always used to say I'd rather be the class clown than a class scholar. And I know really, I know my, my mind was constantly working. And like now you say, you know, I, I've burnt myself out and written out at the moment. But even so, I'll be walking the dog and I'll get a, cu a couplet in my brain. When I get home, I'll have half a poem in my brain and I'll get it down. And that's the way my mind works. When I'm listening to someone else, I'm not a very good listener to other people's poetry generally because while they're talking, I'm thinking. Yeah. So I'd rather write than listen. So what about, so you're both in very different relationships. Jem, you're sort of more long-term. Si, you're quite new in your relationship, aren't you? Are no. your partners in, in recovery? Fine, so, I didn't know. She's a... Uh... Not really. She never really had a problem with drink or drugs. So how does she, how does she understand sort of what's going on, and is she cool with that? Or? Yeah, she's very understanding of it. But uh, there's like there's a lot of times I'll say stuff, and she says you say it just you know about addiction and some of the crazy times. It's like you just say it so matter of fact, as though it's just like just walking to a shop or <laughs> blah blah blah. And to her, it's, I don't know. It might be like quite shocking or yeah. But maybe upsetting even, you know, but... Yeah, we're desensitised to certain yeah. stuff that we've obviously been through. My wife's a normie. Um, <laughs> but she's known That's me cool. She's known me for 40 years now. Um, so yeah. she's known me as a drinker. I don't think she's seen the worst of me as a drinker, but her previous husband, husband was a, a guy who had real problems with drink in the sense that he drank a lot and got quite nasty with it. I don't think I ever got that way, but because that caused uh, quite a few problems, her family freaked out a bit when they found out I was in recovery, particularly when they saw me drinking Bex Blue, for example. Um, but Carolyn, Carolyn can 
can just have one or two glasses of wine. And I've never, ever seen her drunk, never seen her affected by alcohol. So it doesn't even register these days. She's got a glass in her hand. It could be anything. I just, yeah. I, I don't even clock it. So we have a completely normal life in that respect. She drinks, I don't. Um, and I've never had that issue with, with people in public where people have have made a fuss about me not drinking. It's just never been on the radar at all. I mean, I've had, I've had a couple of relationships since I came home from prison in 2014. Um, some would drink, not drinkers as in alcoholics, but some would go out on a weekend and have a drink. Um, some wouldn't. Um, and it's weird because it's sort of, you know that they like a glass of wine, but then when you're with them, if we go out for food, it's like, oh, do you mind if I have a drink? Yeah. And he's just yeah. like, no, I don't mind at all. I'd, rather, I'd, I'd be more annoyed if you didn't have a drink because you thought it would bother me. But when, yeah. when I first came home, um, because of how ma mad my life was before, we would go to a pub and I was quite lucky because my, my recovery was very sort of intense. Um, so w one of the things that I'll never forget, I was in a, in a little room with my drug worker, my sister and my mum mm. in this tiny little interview type room. And I had to pre-write 10 questions and it had to be about their feelings and my actions. How did it feel for you when the house got raided? You know, how, what, what was going through your head when I came home that day and gave specific examples of times when I come in and collapsed and stuff in front of my nephews and stuff that sort of bring a lot of shame that you try not to talk about. And we just got mm -hmm. it all out. And it was one of the best, one of the best things. I mean, it was awful at the time. Don't get me wrong. It was absolutely awful. All four of us just sat crying in this room. Mm. But if I, now it's sort of, if I was ever to use drugs again, it's like, sorry, mum, I know exactly how you feel because you told me in great detail, but I'm still going to do it anyway. It's just ruined, ruined drug use for me. So mm. when, I, when I was getting home leaves, I purposely went into pubs and drunk pop so that when I was released from prison, where I wasn't going to get breath tested on my way anywhere, um, it was normal for me to go in and drink pop. That was your new habit. Yeah, yeah. so I, I needed yeah. to test myself. I needed to make sure that um, I could go to a wedding and be okay. I could go to a birthday party. I could still do the things that I could that I was doing before, but just without alcohol and drugs. So I'd go, I'd go into pubs and not do any sort of them trying to make me fail or anything like that. But some of my mates would just be like, just have a pint. We'll look after you. We'll make sure you don't use any drugs or, you know, you're going to have one eventually. You might as well have it with us while we know you're safe. And it's just, it's that sort of not understanding. Yeah. Yeah. Fiction, I guess, really, to understand yeah. why it is that we don't drink. Even like for me, drink was never a problem. But a few pints in, someone yeah. sniffing in a toilet cubicle, I'm more likely to sort of, you know, yeah. give them a little knock. It's so. a massive disinhibitor, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, I suppose, in a sense, my my early sobriety was a bit like a prison sentence. I deliberately didn't. I went out once in six months, I think, and that was to a, a wedding which I actually couldn't dodge, and it felt really, really weird. Um, and I deliberately avoided any sort of wet situations. Uh, but eventually, like you say, it's life on life's terms, isn't it? You've got to go out and do it. And you're surrounded by booze, whether you like it or not. Yeah. We have to live with it. So. I think for me, I, uh, I kind of put myself in situations that I'd probably advise against mm. in recovery. But for me, it's kind of like, if you're going to mess up, I'm going to mess up at the beginning. 
not six months down the line. So I wanted to know that I had the strength to be in a pub and not want alcohol, which would probably people would advise you against that. But it's again, it's horses for courses. I need yeah. to know that I have that personal strength. Yeah. To keep me safe, and I do, and I do, and I still do. But um, and it never really bothered me. I think once I stopped drinking alcohol this time, and I realised that why I was drinking, I just couldn't fool myself anymore. Mm. About the reason. What do you why mean? What did you realise when you say you realised why you were drinking? Yeah. Why was you drinking? What did you realise? To mess. I wanted to, to whatever I did, alcohol or drugs, it was to mess myself up. I thought it was for comfort and have a good time. But it was kind of the opposite in the end, I think. Like a self-sabotage type? Yeah, like a very self-destructive pattern that we're on. And just drink yourself into a hole and just keep going. But uh, once I stopped, I needed, like when I did my alcohol, when I come off alcohol withdrawal, I did it with 17 bottles of beer in a case inside of my sofa. Mm. And my Psych, uh, CPN and my friends were all like just throw them away throw them away but I thought if I'm going to be tempted I'm going to be tempted out, no matter what whether they're there or not so well that worked for me doing it that way so you did what uh, you just left the beer in your house as a way to say yeah the beer well, I, right, I was like literally you can't when you're coming off alcohol the withdrawals are so horrendous you literally can't walk so I was curled up on a ball and sofa with a box of bottles of beer across from from them. But I just left them there as a test, which everybody were advising me against it. But I think that's what worked best for me, knowing that at any minute I could just grab a beer and make myself feel better. But I'd have to go through those withdrawals again at some point. So mm. yeah, it was just the... easier to have them there, know that I could go through my withdrawal and not be tempted. And once I had gone through the withdrawal and wasn't tempted, I kind of knew in back of my mind, but without being complacent or trying to thinking that I was being arrogant or cocky about it, I just knew that something in my head had kind of changed. I didn't want alcohol anymore. Yeah. The uh, drug worker, she was called Barbara. I'll never forget her. I'd say she was. She still is called Barbara. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> she, she was amazing. And lots of people say, you know, what what do you know? You're, you've never been through addiction. She wasn't an addict but she'd studied it for that long and I tell you what she's probably into treble figures with the amount of lives that she's saved mm. but she always used to say if you sit in a barber's chair for too long you'll get your hair cut yeah um, yeah I you know one of the good things about the way my head works is I'm very competitive and I remember once them saying um when you when you've got 10 people in a room of recovery three of them people are going to die because of drugs another five of those people are going to relapse. So you've, you've one of two people in every 10 that are going to survive. And it's mm. sort of like, it made it a competition for me. It's like, right, well, I'm definitely not going to be one of them three. I'm not going to be one of them five, which means I've only, my only choice is to make sure I'm one of them two. And it, it wasn't said in a way to make it competitive. It was just sort of like a, it was meant to be like a wow factor type um, statistic but in my head, I was just like, right, that's it. I'm going to make sure I'm one of them too, and I'm not the one that I'm not going to be that statistic. Um, and yeah. It's just it's just absolutely crazy how you know little bits of information just get flipped around and sort of used to my advantage. If I mm. I think what Sai said chimes with me. I'm a stubborn bastard, 
Um, <laughs> and once I made my mind up, the, I think they called it the gift of desperation. Once I'd said to myself, can't do this anymore. That was all I needed to say. And I remember going in to see my CPN and she said that one of the first things she said was, what do you want from this? Do you want to moderate or do you want to stop? And I always wonder what would happen. I think if I'd said moderate, she'd throw me out of the office. Uh, but again, she wasn't an addict, but she was just such a, a woman I admired so much. And she said, do you want to moderate or do you want to stop? And I just looked at her and said, I had a bit of moderate and nothing's changed. So now I have to stop. And she went, right, let's do it. And that was it, you know, that I, I knew, I knew as clear as anything that I, I could never moderate. It's just not in my dictionary. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, I had to stop. And once I had that recognition that I had to stop, I went ahead and did it. Yeah. Um, it was tough, but actually not that tough. Cigarettes was harder. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, the first conversation I had with mine, so I, I got moved to a prison in Preston, uh, HMP Kirkham, and... When out, you get put on like an induction wing and I went to the library. You have to go around everywhere and register. I've walked into the library and I'm sort of explaining I've just arrived and I want to register and all this. And I can hear somebody talking and I just thought, I'm sure that's him. So I've walked around the corner and the guy who I was in Armley with was there. We called him Spanish. I don't, I don't think that was, he was called Glenn. I don't know why we called him Spanish, but that was his name. Um, and he was very English, very, very English. Um, and he he was like, oh, I'm on the recovery side. If you lie and say you're an addict, you get your own toilet, your own shower, everything in one room, like single rooms. So I was like, oh, that sounds ace. So I went to prison with sort of no responsibility of me being an addict, no thought process. Absolutely nothing in my mind told me I was an addict. Mm. Um, and then I'm on this wing and then we had to go to meetings and I went to my first NA meeting and... At the end, there was a guy who shared, who I'm still in touch with, and he'd had these these two fingers um, removed. Um, so he just had them three fingers left on his hand. And he had an open wound on his arm at one point, and he was trying to inject into his open wound. So some of the, some of the stories that I heard and some of the situations he was in, but it all stemmed from his childhood, from being a very, from a very strict Catholic family. And... Um, being allowed to drink alcohol at a very young age with meals and stuff. And then he, because of how his head is similar to ours, he took that to the next level and the next level. And the punishments mm. at home were brutal. Um, and that made him sort of leave the home. And I was sat there thinking, wow, I only sniffed a bit of Coke. What am I doing sat here? And then everyone got up and everyone hugged, which made me feel really uncomfortable. So I left and I didn't go back. And mm -hmm. he bumped, I bumped into him walking around doing laps of the prison. And he said, how come you've not been back? So I explained to him. And he just said, it's got nothing to do with how you started or what the journey was. It's where, where you've ended up. And I'll never forget that. Um, mm -hmm. And the woman, uh, Barbara, she called me in and she was like, so why are, you, why are you wanting to move? Why have you not been back to NA? And I told him, she was like, well, tell me your story. And when I started mentioning sort of, spending three to four hundred pounds a day on coke, not being able to get dad on the morning unless I'd had a line and started going for all these things. She was like, are you fucking kidding me? Listen to what, does that sound like a normal life? Uh, are any of your siblings, do your sisters live like that? I was like, no. She's like, so what, what are you saying? You don't need to be here. And she literally, she sat me down and she spelled it out. And I was just like, it all makes sense. She yeah. knew me better than I did at that time. Yeah. Yeah, that's frightening, that, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It I, I can't get my head around the fact that 
you're in prison for drugs offences and you say you've not got a problem. What's your problem? Getting caught, you know? <laughs> <laughs> really bad at it. Yeah. It's brilliant, yeah. It, my, my issue was I always had it, so I never really went without. I never had that sort of, oh, I need to get some. There were certain, certain drugs that you'd feel like that for, but it were more, you'd put yourself in a situation. So you'd go to a certain friend's house where you use ketamine, for example, and you yeah. sat there and you haven't got any. So you're just like, right, I, I, I want some because that's what happens here. You know, it's like going to a five-a-side court and you get there early and you're waiting for the guy with the ball. Yeah. You're like, well, there's no point me being here until the ball comes. So, And you just get really impatient and, you you know, time seems to go slower. And it was just very much like that. So I never really knew what it felt like to go without. Um, and then when you go to prison, because I don't smoke, I never really used recreational drugs in prison because everything that you can get in there is stuff that you'd smoke. And you go there not expecting to get coke or ketamine. So it's it's not like a, I can get it, but I've, I can't get it at this moment. So I want some. You just sort of switch off to it. Yes. Yeah. You can't, you can't have it there. It's not, the option's it's not, not there. Yeah, yeah. This is it. Yeah. So, so yeah, I had absolutely no clue. And then she's saying all these things. It's like, when you were little, did you ever do things like this? I was like, yeah, I did. And it was like, did you collect pointless stuff? And I remember Coca Cola started doing glass bottles. Yeah. Buy a glass bottle of Coke and then keep them. And my unit in my bedroom was just full of empty glass Coke bottles. I was like, why? It's not, I want recycling. I yeah. Why yeah. I'm collecting them. That sort of obsessional mindset. Yeah. yeah. It's funny, I've been reading a lot at the moment. Um, uh, if you've heard of In the Realm of the Hungry Ghosts, Gabo yeah. Mate is, um, he's an, basically, he's a, he's a doctor that treats uh, heroin, well, class A addicts in, in, in Canada. Um, and it's, he talks about, the impact of adverse childhood experiences and trauma um, on addicts and saying that he's never um, met an addict who hasn't had some degree of adverse childhood experiences and the worse they've been, the more chance there is of becoming an addict. And that, you just described in that guy before, yeah. that's a, a classic example. And it's even things like, you know, your parents divorcing and stuff are classed as an adverse childhood experience. But the people I see all the time, that the, the backstories are horrendous. You know, and I actually feel quite guilty for ending up with a problem when I, I feel like a bloody dilettante because you know my childhood, by comparison, you know everyone has problems, but it was a normal middle class background. You know, never wanted for a meal. There was there was a lot of stuff going on, but nothing comparable at all. I actually feel quite guilty. They ended up, you know, partying too hard. But I know it went deeper than that. Yeah, yeah. I know when I when I was in rehab. Uh, obviously, part of rehab is you read your life story out to the community there once you've been in a while. And same thing. Once you start hearing other people's life stories, so I went in a rehab like withdrawing from heroin and feeling sorry for myself and life had screwed me and then I got in there and you start to get a bit better you start to listen to people's life stories and the one thing that was the first time it really opened my eyes to how much childhood trauma played a part in addiction because mm -hmm. literally everybody's life story had some form of abuse whether it be like sexual physical or like mental, like, uh, but it, there were a lot of same thing. 
you hear somebody's life story and then you think, Jesus, what the hell, you know, what am I whining about? Yeah. What am I trying to run away from, you know? Right there, ghost, maybe I'd have something to worry about. But So, yeah, you do feel, I think it's easy to feel guilty about it, but it doesn't matter what you've been through, is it? Like we said before, it's the end result. Where it, where it gets you, yeah. All roads lead to Rome, really. Mm. Isn't it? So. Mm. Yeah, the, the aces thing, I... I didn't like the idea of aces. I mean, the name is ridiculous to start with, um, but I, I had a real problem with them at first because if you if you take the test for yourself, it pretty much says you, you're buggered, you've got no chance in life. Um, but if you're a professional looking at someone's life, I understand now the need for that understanding. Um, so I'm doing some work with the police and we're going to be looking at each individual part of the ACEs and looking at how each individual one has an impact on someone's childhood and then how that affects them later in life. Um, and I think there's a lot of learning to be done with stuff like that. I don't mm. think... What are those, Phil? So it's adverse experiences. So if you look it up, um, if, I was, if I was clever, I could bring it up on the screen and then share it with you both. But... I'm not even going to try and push my luck. Everything seems to be going okay. It says recording up in that corner. It says 56 minutes up in that corner, so I'm happy. I know that this is going to produce them at the end. I don't want to start messing with stuff. Yeah, you do, right. But if you look if you look up, so it, it offers you some questions. I can't remember how many questions there are, but um, it's sort of, did you ever feel that you was unloved as a child growing up? Did you, um, are your parents divorced? Um, was there ever domestic abuse within your household? Um, to, something to do with like a scaling exercise, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, and the more the more yeses, it sort of tallies up a score basically, um, and then it shows what sort of level of support you potentially need as an adult. Um, so again, from a professional working with people, I understand hundred percent how useful a tool like that is. But if if you look on there yourself and put your own answers in it can make you feel like what's you know what's the point and that's the impression i've got from a few people um, mm. the other thing is i remember looking up um I, I found something it was five um precursors if you like for a, for a problem with alcohol and uh, i always remember four but never five but essentially it was like you know uh Someone in your family, you know, genetic predisposition, had a problem with alcohol from your mum. Drinking uh, at an early age, starting to drink at an early age, started at 11. Uh, drinking, uh, with, uh, sorry, spending time with people who also liked to drink. Yeah, did that. Uh, drinking to get drunk, really, from the very start. And I can't remember what the fifth one is, but I basically ticked five out of five. And I was like, yeah, it was always going to happen, wasn't it? Yeah. I remember that my first drink to this day, 11 years old, it was like the sun coming out. And I was like, yes, this does it for me. And it just took the edge off things for me, just calmed me enough um, that all of a sudden I wasn't, I wouldn't say anxious, I'm not showing you what anxiety was, but um, it just sort of grounded me. Right. You know, made me feel like, yeah, this is okay, this. Whereas before, I certainly didn't feel like I fitted in. It, I think it helped me fit in. Because I was the guy, to be blunt, that nicked the cider. I was popular guy, you know. It's a confidence thing this, then. I used to sneak into this garage, and there's a bottling plant in Nantwich where we lived, on the way home from primary school. And 
lift a couple of bottles and get out and we drink it on the park. And I was the man, you know, for doing that. But at the same time, it, was, it wasn't a confidence thing as such as it was, it, it made me feel like this is okay. Yeah. You know, that's the best way I can put it, really. Yeah. The guy who did the share in the prison, he, they had a wine cellar and he used to take, he used to pinch bottles of wine and take them to primary school and then didn't understand why other kids didn't want to drink it. And he was, right. he was that one that sort of like, oh, do you want some of this? And I don't know if it was a way to get them to accept him or for his behavior to be okay because other people are doing it. Or if he was just a, wanting to share. Um, yeah. But when the other kids were saying no, that's when it started to sort of, for him to realize that. Maybe. I think that's where the genetic thing comes in because there's, uh, there's apparently a gene which I think it's called a cetylide or something like that. There's a certain enzyme which makes people feel quite unpleasant when they drink. And it's the same as you get with antibiotics. You get that flushed feeling and a headachey feeling. And most people, after two or three drinks, will start to actually feel, whoo, a bit sort of not well. You know, they get that disulfiram effect. I don't uh, and never have. And I've always loved it. I know now that on a physiological level, some people just don't react well with it. But it's always, I've always been good at it. It's always been like second nature to me. Uh, and that's that is the genetic thing. I'm sure I'm missing a bit of my code that makes it unpleasant to drink too much. So, do you think the stuff that you're doing in life now that you wouldn't have done while you were drink? And obviously, I'm leaning towards the spoken word thing because all three of us have that in common. But is there other yeah. things that that you're potentially doing now that you wouldn't have ever done? Or go on, say. I've been a baby. <laughs> yeah, yeah, good one. Congratulations. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't have done that if I was still drinking, I think. Um, but I don't know. But poetry's kind of filled up a massive void for me with stopping drinking. So it has become a big part of me not, hmm. not drinking. So I concentrate a lot on that more than anything else. I used to be really into photography, which I'm going to start cameras off again and getting back in. Are you good at it? Yeah, you are. But, um, I don't know. I think it's more... Since I started drinking, poetry's given me everything that I really needed. Mm. It's the best therapy I've found, writing stuff down. And then I'll get to work on my anxiety and uh, being around people in general by getting up and performing. And then I get a buzz out of it, which is a reward at the end of it, so... Yeah, yeah. I don't I feel like, kind of, like, like Phil says, his head's off on tangents. Mine's like that, but it also can be on like a million different tangents, but they'll all be poetry ones, mm. if you know what I mean. Mm. Um, mm. But um, yeah, no, just poetry really is the main thing. Yeah. It's you? a funny thing because uh, I'm just flashing back to remembering you, saying that, you know, you, you, so, you look so confident doing your stuff now but I remember the first time when you were visibly shaking and yeah. I'll show you are reminded of that or not but yeah was that in Keithley was that at that one you were at that one yeah, yeah. it was at yeah. at Riri's yeah. of course but yeah, the first time I met Phil but I'll tell you what when we did the online thing with uh, Taria and Kirsty the week yeah um, I was more nervous doing that that was like the very first that was like performing public for the first time yes I doing it you. on the zoom thing because it kind of it all kind of ties in with mental health just webcams and things like that problems that i have with mental health so 
uh, to kind of push myself to do it online. But uh, yeah, that were really, I found it really nerve wracking. It was kind weird, of weird, isn't it? And then I started worrying then because I've been sat in the house for so long now. When we go back out and I start going to perform, I'm going to have to go through all that <laughs> first time nerves all over again and back to shaking and can't read. Yeah, no, can't I don't think book. so. I can't yeah, I think see the that. difference is when you're on stage, you feel. You feel pressure, but in a good way, like you yeah. want to perform. But then when you're at home, it's a bit more relaxed and it don't feel as real. And the other thing is, how weird is it when you finish and no one claps? Yes. Yeah, you really don't know the warmth good. coming back, do you? Yeah, and then you just go like, so um, this next one is... <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> most awkward. Like people are sat there going like this, but you can't hear them. <laughs> yeah. The strange thing is for me, though, is that I've said this today before because I haven't even did a podcast earlier on today. And when I was drinking, I wouldn't, there wasn't enough booze in the world to get me to do karaoke or something like that. There's just no way I would do that. I wouldn't stand up in front of people and talk. But I think the poetry scene, the spoken word scene, I've always, I've always loved it. And it's, it's, a, it's an activity we can get involved in which doesn't revolve around booze. It's all about the camaraderie um and and the words and spending time with like-minded people who bond over something other than a, a shared interest in alcohol um and it's just good fun you stand up there there's, there's nothing stressful about it nowadays because all you're doing is talking to friends yeah and i, I love it absolutely love it and it's uh, as simon's just referred to really it's just given me so much more confidence i mean people would have, would have said before that they didn't think I, I suffered a lack of confidence, but that's just an impression people take away. It's not necessarily the real me. Now I am genuinely pretty confident. I wasn't before. Oh, wow. See, I'm, I'm weird. So I, if I'm going to perform somewhere, I'll go on my motorbike. And if I'm doing three, if I'm doing five, whatever I'm doing, I'll do all of them on the bike on the way there. Yeah. And then I try not to think about it when I'm there because I want to try and focus as much as I can on what everyone else is doing. Otherwise, yeah. I'll be flat with the words going around in my head. And yeah. then someone will interrupt me. And this has happened before. I'll be doing it and then someone will ask me something and I'll be like, oh, where was I? And then I, I forget that poem when I'm performing because mm. I've, not, I've not completed it in my head. Um, gotcha. And the couple of times where I've forgotten words while I'm on the bike on my way there, I've forgotten the words while I'm performing. Right. So I need to, if I nail it before I perform, I go on with this confidence that it's there and I know it and it's going to come out. Mm. But the times, but then it's, it's, that's good. But then the opposite is, well, I know it, but I've just got the words wrong that once. But now I've got it in my head because I got it wrong practicing. I'm going to get it wrong on stage. Mm. And because I'm saying that, I do. So, see, I can do three or four John Cooper Clark poems from memory even now, but I can't remember my own stuff. <laughs> I remember once I did one I did one for the Iftar a couple of years ago, the one I do about uh well, it's called Hope. And I, I literally did that for two weeks walking the dog. It was word perfect. Got up there. I still had my words in front of me because I thought I need this safety net. Got up there, blanked, did it from the sheet. Right. I, I I did it more fluently because I knew the words better, but I could nowhere have done the whole thing from memory. I just it's something about it that trips out. Yeah, well, Can't do it. you know the competitive side to my head. So the first, the first time I ever went to watch it, it was in Wakefield at the Red Shed. So that mm. would have been 2017, November, October 2017. Um, I think that works out to be the right maths. Um, mm. 
and it was after meeting Simon Widdop in Morley and I went and I watched and Toria Garbutt performed and Claire Crossdale was there and Ian um, and Bad Company and Simon Widdop um, and I was just like, wow, these guys. Yeah. They all got up and they all performed. None of, um, Claire referenced words, but she was, the way Claire performs, you know, there's just the talent. And I was just like, if I want to do this, I need to be as good as them. And the way to be as good as them is to, to memorize it. So the first thing I wrote was about cancer and I wrote it laid on the sofa watching TV. It was stand up for cancer in November, Crystal Mays. And I just started writing a note in my phone about how cancer's affected our family. And then I memorized it and I got it in my head and I went to Wakefield to perform it. And I did a workshop with Ralph Dartford. Simon Widdup was there again, um, yeah. a woman called Joy. And um, we went upstairs into this empty room and it was a massive hall and it was like a little booth, like you'd get in like a bar. And we were just sat in there and there was a mic stand with no mic. And they said, right, get up and tell us your poem. So I've got up and I've walked over and I've turned around and I've seen this mic stand and I see three people there. And I went, I fucking hate you, cancer. Oh, it's gone. I got the first line. The first line is all I got. And then I was just like, oh, I'll get it. And then I got the first sort of four lines and then it gone. And I just... I, I could feel myself getting more and more nervous the more that they were looking at me while I was trying to remember my lines. So we, there was a two-hour break in between the workshop and the performance. So I sat and I wrote it out first time, no problems, and then I yeah. had it with me. But in the video, I am sort of looking at it more than I'm not looking at it, and it really annoyed me. Um, but when you know now that I can't focus on one thing at a time, every time I learn my words... I'd learn them sort of here at home, not a problem, get on stage and my head would be, oh, look over there, you need to, you know, that bit where you do that thing with your hand, whichever one of the ones it is, you know, the, the sort of active bits. My head will be telling me about them rather than what to say. And I forgot right. words constantly. I remember doing it in Halifax. I think it's called state learning that, isn't it? Yeah. You have to what, sort of replicate the Yeah, well, what I've, what I've learned to do is to put music on. So I listen to hip-hop music from like Dr. J 2001, stuff like that, because I know the words to the songs. So while the words to the songs are trying to get me to sing along, I just recite the words to the poems. Right. So now when I get on stage, I have no control over what I remember or what I don't remember. I get up, I say the first line, and then we just see what happens. Um, but the one, the one I did in Holbeck, so that was written specifically to perform once. And yes. it's four minutes long, and I had a month and I was just, it just wasn't going in and it wasn't going in. And then it started to, and then it was a little bit. And I got up and I was the most nervous I think I've ever been. Because getting up for the first time, people know it's your first time. Getting up after two and a half, close to three years, you have expectations of you. And then if I was to mess up on this, in this room of sort of 300 people, performing this first piece for the first time to a live audience, never to perform it again. It was just sort of, it was just all these things of added pressure. Um, and I mm. messed up two words, but luckily no one realised. But and do you know what? Having watched, obviously, people like John Cooper Clark and Kate Tempest and listening to their record recordings, they, you know, because I'm a bit of a pedant like that, I'll pick up things. I know that Kate Tempest, for example, missed out a couple of words and changed a couple of lines in that gig we saw. Oh, right. John Cooper Clark, uh, there's as many versions of some of his poems as there are performances, you know. It, it'll tweak them and change them and 
Mm. You'll get different versions on different nights. He does change different words. And I think it's easy that if you voice, if you write stuff that doesn't necessarily scan perfectly or rhyme perfectly, yeah, that's okay. But my stuff, I always try and get to scan and rhyme perfectly. So if I miss out a word, the job's knackered, basically. I can't do it. Whereas, mm. you know, Kate Tempest, for example, it's more of a narrative, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, so the, what, what I got wrong, I've just said the wrong word. So there was still a word there, but it wasn't, yes. it wasn't a rhyming word or anything. It was just yeah. leading up to the rhyme. So I, I got away with it. Only me and one other person knew that I'd heard it before. Um, but no one else in the room had ever heard it. So they yeah. didn't have a clue that, um, that that was a thing. So I was quite lucky. And quite yeah. lucky. So what's, what's your confidence like now, Sai? Can you just... Um... It's, I don't know, I'm still nervous as hell every time I get up. Right. But because I know there's a buzz coming at the end of it now, and I do get a genuine like high off it performing. Mm. Does it matter you to you who's in the room? You are. Does it matter to you who's in the room? Does it get worse no. if there's certain people there? Or? No, I think it's more to do for personal, for my own thing, you know. Yeah. If I'm happy with how I've got it across and I have no answer. Like what you were saying about if you miss a word or you put the wrong word in there and only you know, no one else in that room has a clue and they haven't even noticed that you've made the slightest mistake but inside, in my head, I'm like, ah! <laughs> <laughs> the next of just like, I can't believe I did that! <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Nobody's even noticed it. Yeah. But when I... Uh, Loads of people say to me that when I get up, Kevin, Kevin Fart is like, Jill, she comes up to me and I like you. You get up and you just look like you don't give a fuck. Further from truth, but loads of people said to me, like, you know, you seem confident and like, you're, uh, yeah, you're just really confident doing it and at home doing it. And it's like, I'm absolutely shitting myself all the time. I'm, up there. I'm terrified, but the buzz that I get, it's worth it. It gives and you I the edge, though, confidence. doesn't it, that? The confidence is getting better, but it's something that I know that I also need to work on. Like Phil said something earlier about if you having to read it, you can't perform it as well. Because you're having, you know, as soon as you start moving them out, well, where's my words gone? They're over yeah, yeah. So I would like to be able to memorise them more, but that I really, really struggle on. And again, it's my confidence that stops me having to go at it more. Mm. Some of my poems that I've got memorised perfectly, but yeah, but some of yours you have so many words and you go at such a speed. Like, yeah, I find if, it, if it, when I try and do it slower for other, you know, do I just try and slow me, the speed that I'm delivering it at, so it's not kind of machine gun it. Yeah, I really struggle to keep my brain. To slow my brain down, so it's like from reading an autocue, my brain's already over here, and autocue's back here somewhere. Yeah. But you, so you don't need to, to slow down in the sense that we can understand everything you're saying. Like the, you deliver fast, but it's precise. Yeah. yeah. Like I've said, in, in in my experience, you have for me, and this in sort of a dig at anyone that does it any other way. My my sort of understanding is there's three stages to performing, and the first one is. It's on paper and I'm going to read it and I'm just going to emphasize what I can, but I'm focusing on what this says. The second stage is it's of, it's in my head and I'm probably going to look up a lot because I'm trying to remember the words and the most important thing is I get the words right. 
And then the third stage is it's in there. I'm putting pauses in, I'm emphasizing words, I'm using my hands and it's more of a performance. Yeah. Those sort of I've not got to that level yet. I really <laughs> haven't. That's, yeah. that's what I want to work on more. Cause like we, with the confidence thing because it's my own self-doubt that stops me doing it. It's, in yeah. my head, all I'm hearing is like what my mates and what I think my mates would be saying, you know what I mean? Oh my God, look at him, look at him, dick up there doing that. Yeah. And that's how I kind of talk, that's the negative talk that I have with myself when I'm doing stuff like that. And at first, when I used to watch some poets who really performed the pieces, I used to kind of be a bit like, Oh, yeah, it's just all performance with no poetry. But when I thought about it, it's because I was so jealous that I couldn't do what they you know, I didn't have the confidence to do that. Yeah. Mm. Perform it and put emphasis into it. And it's because I've never done all that. I never did all that at school. I didn't do drama or anything like that at school. Or... Oh, yeah, I would never have done anything like this before. And no. Like, yeah. it, it took me, well, it was only a few years ago that I started, but I, I, I dreamt up a, a poem in prison about spice and that's how I started that was it must have been like mid 2014 um, mm. and then I didn't do anything for a few years and that that must have been what made me think I'm gonna go see Simon Widdop because I was working for Leeds City Council and they have an internal internet um, just where they all post all like um, events that are happening so they call it the intranet and there was something about this punk poet in Morley who's got a typewriter you tell him about yourself and they'll write you a poem or if someone's leaving work, tell them about that person and he'll write them a poem or so I was like, oh, I just fancy. And I can't remember where I was, I was doing something and I had the motorbike and I was just like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna leave this early and go and meet this guy. Um, and that was Simon, was it? It was Simon Widdup, yeah. Right, right. Uh, I don't know how, it must have been because it was through Morley Town Hall. Yeah. It, it must have been something to do with one of the literature festivals. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. it was the dreaming of this poem in prison that must have made me think, oh, I want to go see this mm. guy and see what he's doing. And then that... Uh, <laughs> yeah. That pit. Yeah. yeah, funny if it was... It was, it was, it was Martin Webster that got me going. He, uh, oh, was he it? Sort of, he knew I'd do the bit. And we've always had this common sense of humour, as you know, and he invited me to one in... I think my first one was actually with him, but it wasn't a yeah. roaring success, and it's not something I would have done again, but... Uh, yeah, after that, I got involved with the Batley Poets and it sort of carried on from there. So what's what's more nerve-wracking for you, poetry or stand-up comedy? Uh, it's different in the sense that, I, I, obviously, you don't take your words on with a, a, a stand-up thing, but the guy who who did our training, we did eight weeks of training for that first stand-up gig, he said that you could tell that I... Did I did spoken word? He said because there's such precision in your writing, right. you know. I, I, and it's, it, I always go back to like Steely Dan used to say, "You rehearse and you rehearse and you rehearse until you got it technically perfect. Then you rehearse and rehearse a bit more till it sounds natural." Right. Uh, so although I know exactly the words that I'm going to say, I've done it so many times I deliver them conversationally. Yeah. Um, but because there doesn't have to be that rhyming structure and you don't have to get every word in the right place, but it's still quite a precise little piece. It takes that pressure away. Uh, but as I say, the guy that trained us said, you know, I can tell you're a poet. He said, because of the way you write, it, it, there's not a word wasted. It's all, it's very tight. So it helps. One informs the other is the quick answer, I think, really. Oh, uh, For me, I, I don't think I could do stand-up because... 
I, I feel like I can be funny responsively. So if someone will say something, I feel like I can be quick with a response. Yeah. Um, but even if, if you write a rubbish poetry piece, you get up and you perform it, everyone claps anyway because yeah. it's a respectful thing to do. Yeah. If you get up and tell a shit joke, everyone's just going to look at you and think, I'm not laughing at that. Mm. So you, you could quite happily get up and do a rubbish poetry set and still feel like it went ace. Yeah, well... But it's funny. I, I don't tell jokes for one thing. I don't. It minds narrative stuff. It's sort of storytelling, and I take the piss out of myself, and that's always going to be funny, isn't it? <laughs> you know, obliquely, I take the piss out of myself. Yeah. And the, the other thing is, the only time I really died on my ass, and it, it was that you know the twelve-hour spoken oh, word yeah, job yeah. In, in Leeds. Yeah. I've done that twice, and Cy si was with me, and I absolutely died on my ass. And the reason I did was because the two people that went on before me, I thought. Shit, he's better than me. Uh, and I went on there with that in my head. And the, if you go on to do stand-up and the thought isn't in your head that this is the funniest shit you're going to hear today, you're bum. Yeah. And I, I went on apologetically and didn't know what I was going to be doing. And there was no... I, I hadn't convinced myself, so I wasn't going to convince anybody else I was funny. Uh, but that's the only time it's ever happened. Every other time I've gone on there and it's like, do you know what? This is really funny. Yes. And it might sound arrogant. It's not. It's just a. It's a discipline, if you like. You've got to believe it's good. So I messaged me and told me about that time in Leeds. I'm not surprised. No. <laughs> but you move on. I mean, I remember coming off. A guy actually barricaded me on the way out the door because really? I'd, I'd done this this sort of anti-Brexit joke, and he barricaded me during the performance, and he followed me out the door and started ranting at me. And um, he, he, his first words out of his mouth were, I don't understand why. And I said, what, what, stop you there. If you don't understand, perhaps that, that's the first reason you shouldn't be talking about it. And just walked away and left him. And that was the funniest thing I'd said all day. I <laughs> uh, See, I, I prefer comedy that, that makes me go, ooh, then laugh. You know, some of the comedians I watch, and I just think, it makes, like, sometimes I put comments on Facebook and then delete them before I post them because I'm like, no, I can't do that. Yeah. Uh, so Graham's very sort of my sort of, like, the stuff he comes out with. Graham Rainey, you mean? Yeah. He, I've just been talking to him and I just couldn't do his stuff. I think it's yeah. hugely funny, but there's no way I could do it. I just yeah. couldn't. The difference between, so when Life Experience started, all my posts on Facebook completely changed because yeah. of the director of life experience and you're just sort of like, so now it's time to be an adult. But, um, so the Madeline McCann thing was more about how blase her parents are about what they did, not about making fun of a little girl that was killed by her parents. Um, yeah. Or whatever people think actually happened. That yes. Day. Yeah. Um, but I used to sort of share things are but now people still tag me and stuff i've had to change my facebook so it messages me <laughs> is it okay to post this yeah uh, but yeah i still get i don't again i've had this conversation with graham i actually this is going to sound terribly pious but i actually on facebook and and twitter like yourself i've typed a lot of stuff out and not posted it yeah. i actually say to myself would i be happy to have this read out in church and the answer is no, I don't post it. And I'm pretty much the same. I have written blue humour and given those gags to, to Graham before now. I'm not sure if he's used them or not, but I've come up with something. I thought, 
that kills me. That's really funny. But there's no way on God's earth I can do that on stage. So I've just rung him up and said, do you like this? If you like it, you can have it. You know, <laughs> I can't do it, you know. No. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's changed me a little bit. It, I mean, everything. So I, even now, like I live my life, would I still do it if my mum was with me? That's yeah. the way I live my life now. So, I mean, yeah. not a hundred percent of the time. If I'm in a school talking to young people and yeah, a hundred percent of the time, that's how I live my life. But things like if I'm on the bike and there's a car behind me with my mum in it and the bikes in front of me are changing from green to amber, I'm not going to nail it to get through before it goes red because my mum's in the car behind. So I should treat uh, riding the bike that way all the time rather than just if she was behind me. Mm. Um, so yeah, I do. I do try to try to live my life that way. So one last thing: how how different do you think your life would be if you was never, if if your head didn't work that way and you never became an addict or you never, you know, became an alcoholic or whatever it is? Um, I think I'd have really shit boring stories to tell at parties. <laughs> 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 um, I don't know. I'm kind of. I won't. I'm not glad that I've been through everything that I've been through because it has been a trauma. But it won't make you won't be who you are now if you want. You know. No, absolutely. And I'd, I'd much rather be the person I am now than what I might have turned out as if I hadn't gone through all that crap. No. Mm. Yeah, and this, and, sorry, go on. There's a lot. There's a lot. We've gained a lot of experience, haven't we? It took you know, it might have took a long time to sink in the knowledge, but it is there, isn't it? And you've got that knowledge, which I don't think I would have had. Or maybe I don't have been half as understanding as what I am. I might have been a lot more blinkered and small-minded. I think. Mm. Mm. I always think it's a bit like um, the best footballers don't make the best coaches because they don't understand what makes them so good they've always been that good they've always been exceptional it's just natural to them why, why can't other people do it? I read a story once about Glenn, Glenn Hoddle uh, trying to get David Beckham who wasn't you know as technically gifted as him to do a particular thing and Beckham tried it a couple of times and couldn't you know, oh you're obviously not good enough for that you can't do that and you think you know all that Beckham's achieved but technically, on a technical level, he wasn't as good as Glenn Hoddle. He probably achieved more with, with his gifts. But the fact is that Hoddle didn't get why he couldn't do it. And yeah. I think an oblique way of saying that because I recovered quite late in life, I, I, I've got a bit more self-awareness about me, I think. You know, having come from there, uh, I know how much better I feel now is what I'm saying. Whereas if it had always been normal... Um, I wouldn't know what it took to get me here. Yeah. But now I know the work I've put in. Does that make any sort of sense? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, of course it does. I, I mean, I, before I started taking drugs, so if I would never have taken drugs, um, I was 20 year old. I was an area manager of a security company. So I was going around West Yorkshire in a suit. Um, I would have had a company car if I had a driver's license. So my life would have probably you know, I'd have passed my driving test. I don't know where I'd be within that company or that industry at the moment, but I'd probably have a really nice house and a really nice car because it was a hell of a lot of money for a 20-year-old at that time. Mm. Uh, we're talking 16 years ago now, and mm. I would never have 
stood on stage and performed poetry. I would never have stood in a school in front of a class talking about choices and consequences. I would never have done a one-to-one with a young person and sort of tried to change their perspective on life. All the things that I'm doing now and all the things... So them 10 years were horrible. Don't get me wrong. It was a terrible sort of 10 years of just madness and putting all my family and my friends through absolute shit. But the six years it's been since and the rest of the years to come are going to be massively better than they ever would have been if it wasn't for those 10 years. Yeah. Uh, so whilst it was sort of a terrible thing to go through, it's give my head would always have been the same. So if it wasn't drugs, it might have been gambling. It could have been, you know, sex. It could have been absolutely anything, but it would have been something. Um, so in a way, I'm glad it was, it's weird to say I'm glad it was only drugs because that's the easiest one to identify there's a problem. Mm. You know, with alcohol, it's a social thing to do. You can hide it pretty well, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And with, with drugs, I made it a social thing to do. I stopped hanging around with people that didn't take drugs. or There were friends who were sort of curious who came along and tried drugs with me, and then I'm the one who's got them sort of using, and that sort of... There was no guilt there at the time because it was just somebody else to come and spend time with. Um, so I just isolated myself around people who did the same things, who thought it was okay to drive a car without a license while sniffing ketamine. Mm. Stupid. Yes, you you curate your friendship group so it becomes normal, don't you? Yeah, exactly. And a lot Mm. lot of the friends were customers and it was, I'll go to their house and we'll start sniffing coke. And I know as soon as they've had a bit, they'll want to buy some. You know, it was that sort of deceitful way of, trying to get not necessarily money because I never really made money. I just got free drugs. But once they buy one, they're going to give me a line back and I don't have to keep sniffing all mine. And it was just that what's in it for me mentality. Yeah. 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 It's made me me sort of, well, I think you probably speak to some people and say, no, he's still the same knobhead he was. (laughs) 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 Like, you know, I'm a better person for it. You know, all the work I'm doing, I wouldn't have been, I wouldn't have been doing anything. Yeah. Yeah, and I certainly wouldn't be doing what I'm doing. There's no doubt about that. I'd still be selling bloody bike parts and car parts and stuff. And really... Sounds dodgy. Well, it's just, it doesn't do it for me. I was deeply unhappy when I was doing that stuff. Not because... Yeah. It's just a... It's, it's a Mac job, isn't it? No no disrespect to people who work in Mackie D's, you know. But it, was, it wasn't doing it for me. Just doing it for the money doesn't work for me. Yeah. So, you know, it's one of them, isn't it? Brilliant. Well, thank you very much for being my uh, first video. Thank you, everybody, for watching. Um, This will be on YouTube and on a podcast as well, so I'm going to separate the audio and put it on there. Um, If you've got anything nice to say, leave comments. If you're just going to be divs about anything we've spoken, (laughs) don't comment. And the other thing is, we've spoke a bit about our own personal journeys. We're not saying that the best way to be in recovery is to do what one of the things we've said, because as addicts, one of the good thing, one of the things that we're good at is, Oh, I don't have to do that because he's okay. And he didn't do that. Or you people just pick and choose the bits that suit them. Um, everyone's recovery is different. Um, things don't work for everybody. Like I say, I, I don't go to meetings, but I'm really lucky that I had a really, really intense um, recovery experience in prison, which has sort of helped shaped the way I've, I'm in recovery. So 
don't be picking and choosing the bits you want and going to pubs and then saying, well, Sai said I can go in a pub and not drink. He's a bit stronger than me, but I'll try again. It's not how it works. Okay. But genuinely, thank you very much for listening and thank you too for, for being involved. Um, and I'll see you. See you later. Cheers. See you later.